I hate brainstorming. The thought of getting into a group and thinking outside the box or starting an ideas shower, well, it fills me with dread. To be honest, I thought I was the odd one out. I assumed everyone else enjoyed brainstorming. I thought my colleagues got value out of these sessions. After all, why else would brainstorming be so commonplace? But it turns out I'm not alone in questioning the value of brainstorming. In fact, social psychologists have been researching the effectiveness of brainstorming for the past 40 years, and they've discovered that it's not as effective as we might expect. Today, you'll hear if brainstorming actually works. All of that coming up after this short break. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. For today's episode of Nudge, I spoke to a genuine hero of mine. Sheena Iinga is a world expert on choice and decision making. Her first book, The Art of Choosing, was Goldman Sachs 2010 Business Book of the Year. Her famous TED Talk on choice has been viewed almost 10 million times, and her studies have been shared by me dozens of times on previous episodes of Nudge. Here's Sheena introducing herself. My name is Sheena Iyengar, and I am the S.T. Lee Professor of Business at the Columbia Business School. Earlier this year, Sheena published her second book, Titled Think Bigger, the book aims to answer a question that I have asked myself thousands of times. How can I come up with better ideas? Now, later on, Sheena talked to me about brainstorming and how helpful or unhelpful it is for idea generation. But to start, Sheena explained to me how ideas actually form. For her book, she spent years researching ideas in an attempt to document where, when and how we come up with ideas. Here's what she found. When we think of ideas, where do we think they come from, right? We normally think they happen like magic, right? You're sitting under a tree and an apple might fall on your head, or you climb a mountain and suddenly these mandates come to you as if they've been handed to you by God. And in our everyday experiences, we think of ideas as coming to us much like that, like magic. Um, it comes to us in our sleep, in the shower, while we're on a jog, um, often unexpected when we're doing things organically and not thinking about whatever it is that we want an idea for. And when we're stuck and it didn't and the idea didn't come to us during these organic or spontaneously happening things that we're doing, then what do we do? We go out and do a brainstorm. And that's basically it for how we think ideas come to being. Now, where do ideas actually come from? They come from your ability to take a few important pieces, a few important elements that combine together to create something meaningful. That's what's happening when you form an idea. 
And that could happen during a mind-wandering activity, like in your sleep. It's possible all the pieces could come together. More likely, it'll happen when you're doing more deliberative work and you're being really strategic about it. I guarantee you every idea from no matter what point in time you pull it out from, it was a combination a new combination of existing elements that came together in your head uh, to form that I, that form that new option. Sheena explains how ideas form when different concepts or theories combine in our minds. This combination of thought is what triggers new ideas. Sam Tatum, in a previous episode of Nudge, shared this concept with me. He explained how some of the world's greatest innovations came from the combinations of disciplines. The idea behind the bullet train, for example, first came when an avid bird watcher who worked as a train technician noticed how a bird flew silently through the air at a great speed and applied that theory to the bullet train. The combination of bird watching and train design prompted the idea. Taking inspiration from nature for ideas is fairly common. The Swiss engineer George de Mestral got the idea for Velcro in the 1940s while hunting with his dog. He noticed how burrs stuck to his dog's fur and realised he could create a similar system by mimicking the hook and loop mechanism found on the dog's fur. Inspired by nature, he combined the ideas of burrs sticking to fur with existing textile technology to create Velcro. Combining existing ideas can lead to new ideas. So, where does brainstorming fit in? See, Sheena specifically called out brainstorming as the typical way we try to come up with ideas. Thinking about how much I hate brainstorming, I decided to ask her what she thought about brainstorms and if she thinks they actually work. The problem with brainstorming is, so let's think about the five rules, right? You get people into the room, you say, hey, here's my problem, you know, and now you say, okay, well, everybody, you know, we, we've got this problem. How do we go carbon neutral on our product? Or how do we deal with the fact that nobody wants to come back to work? They all want to stay at home. Could be a problem. Um, or at least a problem people are thinking about. And let's say, so let's, what should we do? Let's huddle. And then, and what are the main rules of brainstorming? Defer judgment, build on the ideas of others, go for quantity rather than quantity, uh, for quality, and go for wild ideas, encourage wild ideas. Okay, so you came up with an idea, and I'm supposed to build on that. And then, so you'll say, well, they want to all stay at home. So let's make it a penalty if they all stay at home. Let's just punish them. And then I start building on that and I'll come up with some elaborate punishments. And then the next person will say, um, well, okay, if you want to make it hard for them to stay at home, why don't we do this? And this goes on. So wait, let's think about this. Most of the time when you do a brainstorm, people jump into solutions and they don't actually talk through exactly what that problem is and all the ways to think about it. Not only did Sheena question the effectiveness of brainstorming like me, but she also has research to back it up. In her book, she shares peer-reviewed studies on brainstorming. In a seminal study on brainstorming from 1987, social psychologists Michael Deal and Wolfgang Strobe collected ideas from participants split into two groups of four. The first group had to work as a team 
in a traditional brainstorming setting and were asked to come up with unique ideas to solve a problem. The second group were asked to work independently and come up with ideas on their own. The researchers went on to compare the output from both groups and found that participants who generated ideas alone produced significantly more than the individuals who worked in a traditional brainstorming session. Those who ideated alone produced twice as many unique ideas as those who worked in the brainstorming group. So, it is fairly clear that brainstorms produce fewer ideas. But it's not just quantity that brainstorms affect, it's quality too. Here's Sheena explaining how brainstorming generates, well, pretty crappy ideas. Now, when you get a group together, it actually could be helpful to have a discussion where each person separately and independently tells you whether that's a problem, because for some it may not be, and how is it a problem, what are the what are the sort of consequences of X, whatever X happens to be. Because you want to understand exactly what problem you're trying to solve. About 72% of companies end up solving the wrong problem because they just don't take the time to really understand what it is. They jump to what it is that they want to solve. So that's one thing that goes really wrong with brainstorming. They jump to solutions. The second thing that goes really wrong is all the cognitive biases that I'm sure you're, the listeners of this podcast know all about anchoring, overconfident, only considering bits of information, a biased set of information. The moment the first person speaks, everybody's got their head in that space. You're not actually getting independently generated information bits, uh, nor are you generating um, uh, independent judgments and ways of thinking about the problem. You essentially created a bias-making machine in that group discussion. Those are the two biggest hurdles right up right there with brainstorming. And and I could go on for a while, but I would say those are the two biggest. You know, it's it's an example of groupthink in action. Now, groupthink isn't one bias. It's actually a compilation of multiple biases, but they're all happening simultaneously in your everyday brainstorming session. Sheena calls brainstorming a bias-making machine. In her book, she states how most brainstorms are set up to fail. The structure of these sessions leads to all sorts of biases. For example, conformity bias, where individuals agree with the group consensus to avoid conflict. Or social loafing, where individuals put less effort into group tasks because they assume others will pick up the slack. And even anchoring, the bias that means the initial idea which is suggested disproportionately influences the direction of the rest of the brainstorm. Avoiding all these biases is pretty much impossible in a traditional brainstorming session. So what should we do instead? It's fairly clear from Sheena's work, plus Deal and Strobe's study, that brainstorming isn't effective. So what's the solution? I asked Sheena after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. 
It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. Here is Sheena explaining what to do in place of a brainstorm. Um, I would, as a leader, I do think it's important to get people in the room where they ahead of time are told, look, you know, here's something I'm concerned about and I want to get your observations and thoughts about, you know, what you're observing. Okay. And what you're thinking. And you want to make sure it's clear to the individuals that A, they've thought about it in advance because that increases their likelihood to actually bring unique information bits to the room. Sheena shares a great study in her book about a better method for coming up with ideas, one that avoids the pitfalls of brainstorming. It's a study from Duncan Watts from Microsoft Research. He and his team created an artificial music market on a website that they called Music Lab. On this website, they offered users 48 unknown songs by unknown artists, and people who visited the website got the chance to listen to each of these songs. The site was extremely popular. It gained 14,000 visitors during the study. But not every visitor heard and saw the same thing. Duncan Watts placed a fifth of the visitors in an independent judgment group. This group got brief clips of each song and rated each one as to whether they wanted to download it. The rest of the visitors were made up of eight different social influence groups. So these groups heard the same songs and the same clips, but also saw a past record of how others in their group rated the song. That social influence group faces many of the problems that I mentioned about brainstorming, like the conformity bias, like the anchoring bias, and all of this swayed decision-making. In the social influence groups, the songs that received early praise by others ended up being the most popular and liked across the board, and the songs with the lowest early ratings ended up almost always being the least popular. In these social groups, the first reviews would influence following reviews. They also found that in these social groups, visitors rated a song according to how others rated it before relying on their own independent judgment. However, in the independent judgment group, there was a much larger variance in what was considered good or bad. Individuals who were unbiased by the views of others were free to give their honest opinion about the new music they were listening to, while those in the social group, well, they were heavily biased. So it seems a fairly simple solution to avoiding problems with bias is independent thought before any group meetings. Don't dive into a brainstorm without any prep, expecting your group to come up with ideas for the next best thing. That'll just fail. Instead, get the group to think through the problem independently and then let each of them share their solution without disruption before starting a discussion. But... This is easier said than done. So I asked Sheena how organizations can actually apply this approach. The quality of information goes up by about threefold if people think about it in advance of coming to the meeting. So you have people come to the room 
where it's not about a competition of who comes up with the better ideas. It's you are part of OR or operations. What are you observing? You are part of strategy. What are you observing? You work on the floor. What are you absorbing? observing? So each person can offer information that they're actually capable of offering, which is what are they observing? That's real information. And that's helpful for the group and the leader to understand how can I best understand to define the problem that I want to solve for. So that's one thing I would do as a team for and a discussion for. The second thing I would do is once you have, based on that, you can now understand the problem. You now define the problem. Once you've defined the problem, I would have a group. Five people. That's a good odd number. Always stick to an odd number. Five people group. They should bring different knowledge bases. So when we say have a team that's diverse, it shouldn't just be sizes, shapes, colors. We actually mean different knowledge bases, different access to information and skills and networks. And so you have these individuals come together. They now understand the problem. You now have each of them go out and ask how has this problem been solved before in our industry? But even more importantly, how has this problem been solved in totally other worlds and industries? By having that diversity of knowledge in your team, you're now ensuring a greater probability that each individual in your team will bring back totally different strategies. And that's what you want. You do not want them to iterate on those strategies up front. You're going to create conformity. Let them go out and find their own unique strategies because you actually want diversity of strategies in this case. Once they come back and now they share what they learn, each as individuals, now you have a real conversation because each individual says, okay, given this problem of how, so let's say our problem with hybrid work isn't how do I get people to come to work? Maybe my problem is how do I get people to be better able to share information with one another when they're working on team projects because we're losing on coordination. I could see that as a reasonable problem. So let's say each of your five individuals say, okay, here's what I observed and learned about in this industry. And this other person says, well, here's what they did um, in this other context, et cetera. So you have now five different ways of thinking about solutions and why they believe those solutions make sense. So they have to bring evidence. Now you have a real conversation. And now you can ask people to combine or come up with ideas for solutions. And again, I would have them first generate as individuals, even if it's at a meeting. Have them give them a few minutes to just think first by themselves. And then they share. You'll get far more diversity that, that way. You'll also get far more engagement. Brainstorming doesn't work. 
Sheena's shared conclusive evidence on that. But group discussion can work if independent thought happens first. Doing this in your team will improve the quality of your ideas, the diversity of your ideas, and the engagement in your meetings. But what if you don't have a team? What if you're working on a project solo? Well, there's another study from Sheena's book that might help you. It's from psychologist Brian Lucas, who ran some interesting studies on ideas and idea generation. In one of his best studies, he asked students to come up with ideas for what to eat or drink on a Thanksgiving dinner. The participants were given two periods of time to come up with these ideas. So round one was 10 minutes straight away after they were immediately asked, just go away and come up with as many ideas as possible. Then there was a 20 minute break where the participants would do another task. And this was followed by round two, which was another 10 minutes to come up with ideas. Before they started, Lucas asked them to predict which round would yield more original ideas. Now here's what's interesting. All of the students thought they'd come up with their best ideas in round one. They predicted they would run out of good ideas, run out of original ideas by round two. After their predictions, they did the actual experiment. They were told to come up with Thanksgiving dining ideas over the two rounds. And then the groups independently rated all the ideas on a scale from one to three for originality. So what do you think the results were? Do you think the students were right? Do you reckon they came up with the best ideas first? Well, that's what I expected, but I was wrong. The more original ideas came in the second round. Sheena writes that these experiments make an eloquent case for persistence, but in an unusual form. We mostly think of persistence as endurance to complete one task, like climbing a mountain or learning to swim or working until midnight on a major project. But we now see that persistence works for ideas as well. Specifically, persistence to keep working on new ideas after your first round of thinking. When I need to come up with an idea, I tend to think for five minutes or so and just go with whatever pops up in my head. That's how I came up with the idea for this episode, for example. But this study suggests I'd do better if I tried to come up with more creative ideas in a second round of thinking, if I paused after my initial ideas and gave it another go later on. Now, on the subject of creativity, I wanted to ask Sheena something. See, most of us in marketing are told to think creatively. Agencies receive briefs asking for creative designs. Marketing job descriptions include creative thinker in the job requirements. But should we tell people to think creatively? Does it work? I asked Sheena. You should never tell people, go be creative. That actually closes them down. It puts too much pressure. Uh, they close down portions of their mind to thinking because they start ruling out, oh, well, that's going to be boring. No, that's not good. That's not good. You don't actually want that. You really want them to focus in on what they're doing. And by having them focus in on what they're doing, take the pressure off of creative. Just say, you know, a phrase it as a question. How do we solve for X? Make it an open-ended question so that they really can explore more widely. The most important thing for coming up with unique, useful combinations of existing ideas to solve a problem is by really enabling people uh, to be curious enough and open-minded enough so that they'll be able to think more expansively about where to look for ways in which analogous problems have been solved. 
There's a fantastic study on this. In the study, Melanie Brooks had 2,000 people use different products. Toys, like Lego bricks, office supplies, like paper clips, and mobile phone apps. They did this an hour every day over two weeks. For half the participants, Brooks told them to write down their most creative ideas after playing the game. Specifically, she told them to think creatively when coming up with these ideas. She told the other half to simply write down their ideas with no mention of thinking creatively. So just write down your ideas. I'm not going to tell you to think creatively. Both groups are told to come up with ideas, but one group is specifically told to think creatively. The results showed that participants who were told to be creative produced far fewer ideas and far fewer novel ideas as well. Brooks concluded that the creativity mandate adds too much pressure and offers no guidance on how to think creatively in practice. So stop telling people to just think creatively. That won't work. But what about building an office that's designed for creativity? See, the likes of Facebook... Google, Apple, they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars designing stunning offices, all with the goal of encouraging staff to think more creatively. But do these fancy offices really help employees to come up with better ideas? I asked Sheena, and she gave me this wonderful example of Bell Labs, the technology company founded by Alexander Graham Bell. If you look at Bell Labs, they actually have the best, I suppose, field experiment without calling it that. They had two buildings. One was really, really ugly, and the other one was fancy um, and innovative. Um, and they, you know, if you look at the number of Nobel Prize winners and you look at the number of great innovations that came out of those Bell Lab buildings, it's a slight in higher number in the uglier building. But I would be more inclined to say that because you actually have more Nobel Prize winners from the uglier building. But I would say perhaps more conservatively, there's no difference. They both produced great ideas. I think in the end, for getting your best ideas, to the extent that space matters, what matters is that you need a place where you really can think and work in a way that you're comfortable. Uh, you need access to information. And that could mean technology that gives you information. It could also mean having people that you can, who you can run in and talk to, who can answer questions for you and tell you stuff you're missing. So I think those are far more important for your ability to innovate than how fancy the space is. So quick recap, telling people to think creatively, that won't work. Building fancy offices to inspire ideas, that won't work. And brainstorming most of the time won't work as well. In fact, to finish up, here is the most damning example of the ineffectiveness of brainstorming that I could find. It's from Dave Trott's wonderful book, Crossover Creativity. He writes that in 1944, the OSS was the precursor to the CIA. So like the CIA, the work of the OSS was spying, sabotage, dirty tricks, and anything to disrupt the enemy. With this in mind, they issued a booklet to be distributed to anyone who was sympathetic inside occupied territory. The book was called A Simple Sabotage Field Manual. As you'd expect, it was full of suggestions on physical damage, stuff like destroying machinery, delaying production, wrecking transport, and so on. But the really sneaky part 
was the section on the great harm an average person could do to the enemy's war effort without any risk of being detected at all. The sabotage was so insidious that it would never be noticed. It required no tools and it produced no physical evidence of damage. The manual explains exactly how to administer this damage. In fact, it writes that these tactics are based on universal opportunities to make faulty decisions, to adopt a non-cooperative attitude and induce others to follow suit. It specifically stated that middle managers, especially those with white-collar jobs, should pontificate, flip-flop and take every decision into a committee. It states that rather than thinking independently, they should brainstorm and debate in groups instead. The manual said they should bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible, haggle over precise wording, hold conferences when there is more important work to be done, Specifically, it asks people to insist on doing everything through channels, make speeches and talk as frequently as possible, and importantly, refer all matters to committees. These, it wrote, were subtle and destructive tactics for sabotaging decision-making processes in all organisations. But the really clever part is that they would never be noticed, because this sort of stuff happens all the time in typical meetings and typical brainstorming sessions. And the irony is, most of us do this in the belief that we are doing the job. We are sabotaging ourselves every day as if we had read the OSS manual. So rather than following the literal advice on sabotage by deferring your ideas to groups and brainstorms, follow the advice of social psychologists and avoid brainstorms like the plague. Okay, that is all for today, folks. I want to say a big thank you to my fellow brainstorm naysayer and this behavioural science legend, Sheena Iyengar, for coming on the show. She is an incredible researcher and her book, Think Bigger, is a fantastic read on the psychology of ideas. I've left a link in the show notes if anyone wants to pick up a copy of her book. I highly recommend it. And there's some good news. Sheena will be back on Nudge in a few weeks, this time talking all about choice. She'll explain why less is more when it comes to choice and the behind-the-scenes story of one of the most cited behavioural science studies in history. To make sure you don't miss that show, you will want to follow Nudge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll want to subscribe to my newsletter. All newsletter subscribers get the first notification on new episodes, plus they get a behavioural science tip every single Friday. To subscribe, head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu it is totally free thank you for listening folks and best of luck for those of you out there who are forced into a brainstorming meeting at some point this week if you are perhaps share this episode with them cheers <laughs>